This is the Medical Beat on 97.1 FM Talk. All right. Hello, St. Louis. Uh, this is the Medical Beat, 97.1 FM Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Harvey. We're going to have a great show today. If, if you're tuning in, hoping for some good stuff, then uh, we've got that. We've got some good stuff today. We're going to have a lot of different things today. We're going to start out uh, talking about how the COVID pandemic is going for St. Louis County. And we have with us here uh, none other than uh, County Executive Dr. Sam Page. Uh, Dr. Page, for those of you who don't know, is an anesthesiologist who uh, became involved in, uh, in government on various levels, uh, currently serves as county executive, and uh, became, and soon after becoming county executive, uh, the pandemic hit. So St. Louis has been in the unusual situation of having an actual, uh, an actual physician at the helm uh, during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So first of all, uh, welcome, Dr. Page. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me on your on your show. Yeah, you bet, you bet. Hey, so I think the the first thing I want to ask is just just overall, can you tell us how is the pandemic going uh, for our area, and what is the trajectory for now? Well, we're in the middle of a, a slow and thoughtful reopening in St. Louis County and in our region. Mm-hmm. On Monday, St. Louis County businesses will be at fifty percent capacity, with guidelines for social distancing. That can be found on our website at stlcorona.com. In St. Louis County, we issued uh, stay-at-home orders sooner than just about everyone in the country, and that put us in a much better position to make it through the first wave of the pandemic and protect the health and welfare of our citizens of our region. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. How... uh... Where are we now compared to our peak? I, I guess was the I lost track of time. Was the peak around mid-April or so, or w- when was that peak? Uh, at end of April, first week of May, the uh-huh. peak was actually more of a plateau as uh-huh. we watched hospital admissions and ICU admissions and ventilator usage start to fall off after the first uh, first few days of May, yeah. and they've been steadily declining. And we uh, we track those figures pretty closely with the St. Louis Metropolitan Pandemic Task Force. Yes, yeah, yeah. So so for a while we've been on like on a slow, steady uh, decline where things are things are getting better. Yeah, yeah that's right. And and we can track those statistics. They're published and updated daily at our website stlcorona.com. Yesterday we had 88 new cases. We're testing about 1,200 people a day in St. Louis County. Mm-hmm. And our positive to negative ratio is about 3.9%. It's been hovering a little over four, and we're happy with that number. As long as we can uh, get people tested who need to be tested, we're testing asymptomatic people who are in high-risk jobs and watching that number very closely. Right. Okay. And I know that, that also you're, you're very closely monitoring the, uh, the rate of, like you said, the rate of hospitalizations, ICU admissions, people on the ventilator. And in, in some ways, that's an especially good number to track because it's not as, tell me if this is right, it's not as dependent on how much testing is going on. It's, it's more, more ind- relatively independent of that. Is that correct? That's, early on, that's right. Early on in the pandemic in our country and in our region, we didn't have uh, as much testing as we would have liked. And uh, what, one thing holds true, no matter how much testing you have in your community, people still get sick. 
and a subset of those, around 15%, will be hospitalized. Around 5% or less could end up in the intensive care unit. So that that number of hospitalizations, number of ICU admissions, that is uh, the best indicator of what's happening in your community, uh, regardless of testing. Yeah. And I suppose so. Things have been uh, gradually getting better here in St. Louis, and I know that uh, things have been looking a little scary in some other parts of the country. W- would you would you care to speculate regarding how come things are going better in St. Louis County than they are in other parts of the country? Well, we issued our stay-at-home orders a little earlier, and we saw other parts of the country um, a little more eager to relax those restrictions. Yeah, and uh, I think that's what we've seen in Florida, Texas, Arizona, and California. In fact, the governor of Texas uh, today um, walked back uh, some of the uh, um, openings and has issued new new closures, including closures on bars, to try and deal with really an explosion of positive cases in in that state. And really what we've seen here that's put us in a better shape is, uh, you know, a little bit tighter control of of our stay-at-home orders, um, managing them very closely, Mm -hmm. relaxing in a a thoughtful and uh, managed way. But really what's helped us is wide acceptance of our social distancing guidelines in St. Louis County and mask wearing out in public when when, uh, folks can't be six foot apart. And those social distancing guidelines, acceptance of mask wearing are really an important part of what's got us to where we are today. And it's an important part of keeping us in this position. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. It's my understanding that wearing a mask is is probably more helpful than we originally thought it was. I guess the science backing that up is uh, is getting stronger. Yeah, that's right. And and it is frustrating and inconvenient, especially when it's hot outside. Yeah. But if it keeps our uh, keeps us going, keeps us safe, keeps the virus from spreading in the community, allows us to keep our small businesses open and keep some commerce going, then it's a decision we have to accept and we have to make. Yeah, yeah. And just uh, just just my unscientific sampling, you know, looking around when I'm out and about, I see a lot of people wearing masks. So it looks like St. Louis County is is mostly doing a pretty good job of doing that. So that's that's great. Yeah, that's been good. How about how about as far as further reopening the economy? What is uh, what's the current? Tell us again the current status of that, and what can we see going forward? Well, we see around the country the results of moving too quickly, and what I hope to see in St. Louis County is um, uh, thoughtful and gradual recovery as as our residents get more comfortable going out and about, look around them in the and see the opportunities for commerce and see that they're safe. They look like they would be safe. They inspire confidence. And I think we'll see more more of our residents patronizing the businesses and the restaurants. But we have to be smart about it. We have to be thoughtful. And uh, we have to be cautious. And we will continue to advance our openings and advance our restrictions. But Monday, we'll be going to 50% uh, capacity of the uh, fire code occupancy. Mm -hmm. And we'll be watching the testing and the reports from the pandemic task force. And watch the acceptance of social distancing in the community, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Yeah. Is there a specific uh, criterion to uh, take the next step, or how, how does that work? Well, we, first we want to make sure that the, the uh, number of positive tests in the community isn't moving too quickly, and the positive to negative ratio isn't moving too quickly. I wouldn't be worried so much about a small bump in positive tests as long as we know where they came from and we're able to trace all the contacts. 
would be wor- more worried about positive tests in the community if we weren't quite able to trace the contacts or, or figure out where um, individuals might have been exposed. But we'll also be watching a key metric, a key number is, um, uh-huh. is hospital admissions. Yes. We want to watch that hospital admissions date if it gets uh, data. If the number of admissions per day gets much above 30 we'll be, or 30 or 35, we'll be watching real closely. Mm-hmm. If the number of hospital admissions uh, per day gets uh, above 40, uh, we'll be having conversations about whether or not we, we need to uh, consider some of our restrictions. Got it. Okay. Thank you very much for being on the show, Dr. Page. That's Dr. Sam Page, county executive. Things are getting better, but we're not out of the woods with COVID. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. (sighs) Sorry I'm late, everyone. It's all right. The meeting's just getting started. Are you in your closet? Yeah, it's the quietest place. Ah, not the roomiest, though. Getting closer with your closet these days? That, uh, dinosaur costume behind you? What? No. (laughs) The Container Store's custom closet sale is here to help with up to 25% off closet systems and free virtual in-home closet design. Who wants Sean to put on the dino suit? Really, guys? The Container Store, where space comes from. This is The Medical Beat on 97.1 FM Talk. This is The Medical Beat 97.1. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Harvey. And uh, now we have something different. Uh, Right now we have with us uh, on the line uh, Dr. Eric Lenz. Uh, Dr. Lenz is a uh, professor in the psychiatry department of the Washington University School of Medicine, and he leads a uh, large research effort uh, for a medicine uh, that could potentially be a treatment for COVID-19. And the medication is fluvoxamine. Uh, As a psychiatrist, Dr. Lenz and I are very familiar with fluvoxamine. It's FDA approved for obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, But now that same medication is being considered as a possible treatment for COVID-19. So, uh, so Dr. Lenz, first of all, uh, I want to say thank you so much for being here with us. And 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 the second thing is I want to ask, what up with fluvoxamine? How is it that people even thought of fluvoxamine as a treatment for COVID-19? Well, thanks, Dr. Harvey, and I'm really glad to be on your show as well. Uh, So it may uh, seem counterintuitive to take an antidepressant that people take for obsessive-compulsive disorder uh, and turn it around to see if it can uh, treat COVID-19 illness. Yeah. Uh, This is called drug repurposing. It's because uh, many drugs out there have more than one effect, and I think Maybe one of the more famous examples of that is the drug Viagra. It was actually originally created to treat uh, pulmonary hypertension, uh, but it was turned, uh, it was found rather by accident that it actually uh, treated erectile dysfunction and it's become very famous for that. Yeah. So I I wonder, I I wonder exactly how that happened. I'll bet you there's a really good story behind that. Supposedly, it was that the male participants in the clinical trial refused to return their uh, pills when the trial was over, and that's how they got onto it. But I can't tell you whether that's uh, that's uh, true or not, but 
Um, it's a great story, whether it's true or not. Yeah. <laughs> fluvoxamine is a drug yeah. uh, that actually it was shown last year in a study to reduce some of the uh, damaging aspects of basically our body's response uh, to infection. Hmm. Uh, and this is a big issue in uh, COVID-19 illness. First of all, there's the viral infection itself, which can make people uh, ill and sometimes uh, end up in the hospital uh, from damage from the virus itself. But then there's a second phase of the illness uh, in which many people about one to one week or so into the uh, illness uh, become worse. They get short of breath. Uh, they have uh, and they have lung damage. Uh, and requires supplemental oxygen or even ventilator support. Ah. And in many people, it seems that the body's response, uh, something that your uh, listeners might have heard as called the cytokine storm, that's your body's immune response to the uh, infection, basically an immune response uh, in overdrive. Uh, Fluvoxamine has been shown to dampen that response, thereby potentially preventing... Uh, this bad complication of COVID-19. Ah, so it's sort of like COVID-19 has has two stages. One that's kind of like a regular bad cold, and then the and then some people progress into this other stage where people get very very sick, and and so basically fluvoxamine, if it works as hoped for, it will prevent people from getting very very sick. Exactly, and yeah. that's uh, how we're testing it in this study. We're recruiting people. Uh, soon after they've uh, developed symptoms uh, and are, say, at home with mild illness. And uh, we're providing uh, the study medication to see if it prevents that illness from worsening uh, to the point of them getting uh, hypoxic, you know, low oxygen in their uh, system and requiring hospitalization. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and uh, how many... uh... How far along um, are things going in the study, or how how many more subjects do you need? Thanks. We just uh, uh, passed uh, 100 people in this study, and we're trying to get a bit over 150. So if any of your listeners by any chance happen to have uh, been recently, uh, very recently, meaning within the past week, been uh, diagnosed with covid uh, or know someone who is, we'd be very interested in helping them out uh, in this study. The nice thing about this study is everybody gets monitoring in this study. So hmm. we hook everyone up with a, a pulse oximeter, which is a simple way to measure the oxygen level in your blood uh, and other monitoring equipment, as well as uh, study medication. Uh, so yes. everyone in the study benefits from the uh, monitoring. Oh, and to, and so to qualify for the study, you have to be someone who uh, has been sick for less than a week or? Correct. Correct. Uh, sick okay. for less than a week and uh-huh. not so sick that you're already in the hospital, basically. Right. And so, well, of, of course, the study's ongoing, so we don't know yet whether uh, fluvoxamine works, but we've seen people in this study who uh, I, I, I believe have benefited. For example, we had a uh-huh. recent a patient who uh, was uh, monitoring themselves with the equipment we gave them and found that their uh, oxygen level had taken a turn for the worse. And we urged them to go to the hospital where uh, they indeed needed to be hospitalized and get supplemental oxygen. 
But had they not known that with the monitoring, then, you know, they, they might have uh, festered at home longer and only got to the hospital when it was uh, the illness was much worse and required, uh, you know, yeah. uh, ventilator support or, or more. So. Right. Oh, that's excellent. So even even though you don't know if the medication helps or not, just by being in the study, people get uh, people get some extra benefit from that. If 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 someone qualifies, how do they how do they find you guys, or how do they get in touch to try to get into the study? Well, if uh, someone is uh, interested, they can either check us out online. I think you could just type "stop COVID trial" all one word hmm. uh, into uh, Google. Uh-huh. Uh, or you could call us, area code 314-747-1137. And again, this is people who have just recently uh, developed COVID uh, illness within the last seven days or less. Right, yeah. And they're not so sick that they're already in the hospital. So, yeah. Correct. Okay. So that's that stop COVID trial. And if they type that into the Google machine, they'll probably find you. Yeah, and I appreciate that people, uh, you know, people are interested in this study. To date, we still don't have any treatments for people who are early in the course of the illness. As as, uh, you know, Dr. Harvey, and I think Mm -hmm. many of your listeners know, there are now two uh, treatments that have been shown to help for people with uh, serious COVID illness who are hospitalized. So we know that remdesivir infusions uh, can uh, help the illness a little bit. So uh, can uh, dexamethasone, a steroid treatment. Yes. Uh, but those are for more, you know, seriously uh, ill people. What we're trying to do in the study is see if we can prevent people from getting seriously ill in the first place. Right. Yeah. Which which would be excellent. So yeah. All right. Hey, we're gonna be back in just a little bit. We're gonna ask Dr. Lenz a whole bunch more questions. We want to find out a little more about the science behind this and how the study works. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Medical Beat. All right. Hey, we're back. Uh, This is The Medical Beat, 97.1 FM Talk, and we have here, well, I am Dr. Steve Harvey, and we have with us here uh, Dr. Eric Lenz from Washington University. We've been talking about, uh, just as a refresher, we've been talking about uh, fluvoxamine as a possible treatment for COVID-19. Fluvoxamine is actually a psychiatric medication uh, that might block something called the cytokine storm, where... Uh, so that basically, it if it works as hoped for, it can prevent people from getting super sick. It, people might still get sick from COVID-19, but if it works like we're hoping it will, it will prevent people from getting so sick that they go to the hospital uh, and or die. Uh, so that that's what we're hoping for. So we have uh, the leader of the research effort, uh, Dr. Eric Lenz, with us here today. And Hello. we're gonna we're gonna continue this discussion. Uh, uh, b- before I ask Dr. Lenz the next question, I, I guess one thing to point out is that this is a uh, this is going to be a very uh, rigid, uh, well done, proper clinical trial. 
And Dr. Lenz and I know how very important that is in medicine, where so many things that we thought would work end up not working when you actually give it a proper trial. So I wanted to ask Dr. Lenz about that. Can, can, can you tell us, Eric, can you tell us more about what makes a trial good and, and wh- how do you design a trial so that we get at the truth? How do we find the truth with these things? Yeah, that's a, a, a great question. I've been conducting uh, clinical trials for good grief more than 20 years now, of course, hmm. uh, most of them in psychiatry, but across all of uh, clinical medicine, the, the rules are pretty much the same. First of all, if you really want to test rigorously whether a treatment works, meaning whether it's better uh, than uh, doing nothing and also whether it's appropriately safe and well-tolerated, you have to test it versus a, a control group, which yeah. with medications is usually a placebo. That's a, mm-hmm. an inactive pill, what they uh, say, a, a sugar group. A fake and the pill. second yeah. part of it is mm-hmm. that people should be randomly assigned, meaning they don't get to choose whether they get the real thing or not, and yeah. neither do the investigators. It's yes. like uh, the cast of a die or, uh, or the flip of a coin. Yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, so I guess in that way, we have uh, there's no there's no potential bias, and the the person taking the medicine doesn't know if he's getting real medicine or placebo. Is that correct? Yeah, that well, that may be uh, that's particularly true, uh, particularly helpful for like psychiatry studies. I think in this case with COVID nineteen illness, hmm. someone might might have at least an inkling of whether they're on the real thing or not. Hmm. But the key is whether they're randomly assigned uh, to one treatment or, or another. Yeah. And I think if if people remember back in the early uh, stages of the COVID pandemic when it hit the U.S., uh, we had hydroxychloroquine being touted as uh, a highly effective treatment right. uh, based on some early uncontrolled reports uh, out of uh, various countries where people said that they were finding really great uh, great results with it. And you yeah. had uh, doctors all over the country prescribing it. You even had the president touting it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what, was, what was critical is that many people said, well, let's actually test it with some rigorous studies with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for, such as placebo-controlled studies or other randomized studies. Yeah. And uh, to date, in, uh, in all of those studies, hydroxychloroquine has not appeared uh, any better than placebo. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, so, it, you know, so thus far, as far as we can tell, it does not ha- seem to have a role in the treatment of, uh, or prevention of COVID illness. Yeah. So, so in, in bigger, better trials, it turned out hydrochloroquine, I, I guess we're pretty confident now that it doesn't have any benefit. And if I understand some of the recent data, it looks like it might even increase the chances of death uh, in ho- in hospitalized patients. So yeah, that I, I, yeah, 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 and I, I think um, I, I think its uh, potential toxicity is probably uh, pretty dose related, and I don't want to scare anyone out there who's yeah, taking yeah. it and maybe has been on it for years for uh, rheumatoid arthritis or anything oh, like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 it is actually a relatively benign medication, but but yeah. more to the point is that it it, it has not been shown to help uh, reduce the severity of the illness. 
Right. And it has not worked as a prophylactic either. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. But then I guess uh, uh, for uh, for fluvoxamine, uh, for that one, it's not really being tested as a prophylactic. It's being tested to see if it can prevent people from becoming seriously ill uh, once they have been infected. Yeah. That's right. We're testing it as an early treatment for COVID illness. I think uh, most people probably, if they got uh, they got the illness and they went and uh, got tested and were told, yeah, you're COVID positive, uh, stay at home and try not to infect anyone, they might be thinking, hey, I, I, I wonder what I could do uh, in order to avoid this illness getting worse so I end up in the hospital. Um, right. And uh, uh, that's, what, that's what we're testing as to whether fluvoxamine can do that. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're hopeful that it, it can actually reduce the rate of uh, what we call clinical deterioration yeah. uh, from the illness. Yeah, and I guess if, if this turns out to work really well, that would be quite a game changer if people could, could take fluvoxamine and there would be much less chance of them having to go to the hospital. That would be excellent. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're hoping, and uh, we, we should be done with this initial study in another uh, month or so, and soon after that have at least some preliminary answers about it. Yeah. Um, that's my hope. Yeah. Do you want to hazard a guess on how likely it is it's going to work? Or do scientists uh, do that? I, you, you, you know what I Scientists don't, I don't guess. There was, there was a study published last year that showed that it was highly effective uh, in mice at preventing this what's called cytokine storm, oh. uh, where it, it almost, uh, complete, almost completely prevented uh, uh, death. Excellent. Uh, in the mouse model um, of uh, illness. I didn't know that. I, yeah. As you as you well know, Dr. Harvey, a lot of medications that look really very highly effective in uh, animal models or other preclinical studies uh, end up not working in people. Yeah. Uh, our biology is very complex. So yeah. now as 50 years ago, the only way to really know is to conduct these randomized trials. Right. Test it. Yeah, but I guess if it, if it worked on, if it worked in mice, I, I hope that means it's going to work in humans. I mean, what is a human if not a 70-kilogram rat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our immune systems are fairly similar, but, but and so I am uh, hopeful based on uh, the, the very positive study that was published last year, but... Yeah. But, um, uh, but you know, I think if we look at other illnesses like Alzheimer's disease, uh, you, you, you know as well as I that yeah. uh, ni- over 99% of the medications uh, tested for Alzheimer's disease have been failures. Yeah. Uh, and, but all of these were medications that worked in mice. So Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but ho- so hopefully this will have a better outcome. But and I guess just yeah, I, yeah. I, I think the point is that people should be taking medications based on good solid evidence and not based on hunches. Yes, right. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. and and to, just to make sure everybody knows, we want to say this part over again, which is that it, it, tell me if this is right. In order to qualify, people need to have been uh, sick from covid nineteen for less than a week, and you need to not be so sick that you're in the hospital. Is that correct? 
Correct. And uh, the sooner we can get people in the study, the better, I think. The sooner you can uh, get started on a medication to prevent uh, worsening of the illness, the, the, the better is our thought. So yeah. um, on average, people have come into our study and taken the first uh, dose of medication uh, on average about four days after their onset of uh, illness. Yeah. Um, so so right. th- this is what we're looking for. We really appreciate the people who participated so far. And the nice thing is that, again, everyone who participates gets the opportunity for the enhanced monitoring that we provide with yes. our frequent check-ins yeah. uh, and with our mon- the monitoring equipment that everyone gets, including yeah. a, a pulse oximeter, uh, yeah. which is a very simple, straightforward way to check the oxygen level in your blood to yeah. see if yeah, so yeah, stop. Uh, yeah. Your lungs are working. Yeah, so stop COVID trial. You can find that in Google. Stop COVID trial. It's the uh, fluvoxamine trial at Washington University with Dr. Lenz. And uh, Chad is playing the music, which means we got to go. But hey, if you have COVID, want to participate, stop COVID trial in Google. And uh, you can get some benefit and contribute to science. We'll be back right after these messages. Thank you. You're listening to The Medical Beat. All right. Hey, we're back. This is The Medical Beat, 97.1 FM Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Harvey. And uh, to cap off our show today, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to switch gears and talk about another topic, a topic that... uh, has probably not been on your mind recently, but it should be, and that is spontaneous human combustion. Yeah, we're going to talk about spontaneous human combustion today, and I'm going to tell you all about this very strange phenomenon and how to protect you and your family from from having this happen. Uh, Just kidding about that part. But seriously, spontaneous human combustion uh, is more or less what it sounds like when uh, the victim uh, bursts into flames and dies, as strange as this sounds, it has been documented to occur uh, at least 200 times. There are at least 200 uh, pretty well-documented cases of this occurring. Uh, some of them, some of the cases were, you know, as far back as, you know, the 1500s and the 1600s. Uh, it has continued to happen uh, on rare occasions, even in recent decades. Uh, so we're going to talk about what do we know about this and how in the heck is something like that even possible. And finally, we're going to talk about what is it that science has discovered about this. Have we unraveled the mystery or, or not? Um, so with these cases of spontaneous human combustion, uh, typically uh, the victim is found uh, uh, burned down to ash. So it's not just that the person caught on fire, but the person was very, very thoroughly burned. And often their body is reduced to ashes, but oftentimes part of their body is completely unburned. There might be, you know, their lower leg or their arm or their hands that have not been burned. So it tends to to center around uh, the torso and the abdomen. And also, even though the body is reduced to ash, Oftentimes, a victim of spontaneous human combustion is found to have other things nearby 
that did not catch on fire. And this is something that especially confused investigators before, because for a human body to be incinerated like that, normally it would take a very intense fire, a very, a very big, intense fire. So with a big, intense fire like that, stuff that's nearby should catch on fire. But they don't. The person is incinerated and something very close by, uh, like a stack of newspapers or something like that, is often left untouched. Uh, and most of these uh, most of these occurrences, you know, the police looked for accelerants or foul play and did not find anything. And uh, oftentimes there's a yellow greasy film found on the walls and the windows. And um, and again, that the surrounding area is unaffected. So um, people have been grappling with this phenomenon for a long time. And there were a lot of theories that came about for how this could happen. Uh, one early theory was was simply that God must have been mad at that person and he made them burst into flames. And that's, given the times, that was as good an explanation as any. Uh, another explanation that came up was the, and, and I'm not joking, was that the was a exploding uter, uterus. A lot of the victims were women and they speculated that postmenopausal women might, for some reason, have their their uterus explode. Yeah, that, that theory has since been disproven. Uh, space aliens, no, I'm not joking. Space aliens has also been advanced as a possible explanation. Uh, ghosts or poltergeists, uh, uh, intestinal gas like methane in your intestines that explodes, uh, other types of runaway chemical reactions, ketones. Uh, there's also something called ball lightning where lightning in a sphere uh, can hit people. We're not sure if that's even exists, but it might exist. So people speculated that it might be that. Also speculated that it might be alcohol in the person's system. Now, now the alcohol theory made a lot of sense at the time because a lot of the victims of spontaneous human combustion are alcoholics. In fact, it seems like a disproportionately large number of people who were victims of that uh, were people who had been drinking at the time. So some people thought, oh, alcohol is uh, is combustible. Maybe the alcohol in their body caught on fire. And actually, the, the fact that the idea that that might cause spontaneous human combustion was actually used as one of the arguments in favor of prohibition in the United States. So they, they argued that if you want to if you want to have people stop bursting into flames, you have to uh, stop alcohol. That was the argument in the early 1900s. Um, anyway, so so later on, uh, a couple of scientists, or a, a few scientists, started to unravel this mystery of spontaneous human combustion. And I'll walk you through this, what, what people have uh, unraveled about that. The first thing is that people realized that most people who underwent spontaneous human combustion did so while they were by themselves. It almost never occurs while there's other people around. It is almost always while they were while they were there by themselves. So that kind of makes you go, hmm. Also, people who were victims of this uh, tended to be older, also tended to be sick. They, they on the average they had health problems to start with, and. Also, they, most of them were overweight, and also a lot of them were alcoholics. So not, not everybody checked all those boxes, 
but uh, but typically it was an older, overweight, sick alcoholic. What well, was sort of the typical person uh, that uh, was a victim of spontaneous human combustion. Really, the next advance was when they uh, recovered one of the bodies that had been a victim of spontaneous human combustion. There was enough left that they were able to do some tests on the lungs. And the coroner discovered that in that particular person, the lungs did not have smoke in them, which meant that that particular person actually died before the fire started. Um, And that turned out to be one of the biggest clues. Uh, is that at least that one person died before the fire started. And later on, they figured out that probably probably these cases are actually people who died, and then for some reason they caught on fire after their death, uh, which makes sense because, you know, if, if someone's still alive, if there's a small fire, they might be able to swat it out or something like that. Also, a lot of... Uh, Further investigation showed that a lot of people who were victims of spontaneous human combustions actually had a source of fire nearby. They were uh, they had a candle nearby, or they were close to their fireplace, or they were smoking cigarettes, or something like that. So there was something nearby that was a plausible source of, of lighting themselves on fire. Um, Finally, they found out, they discovered something called the wick effect, where if someone catches on fire, uh, the fat from their body soaks into their clothes, and their clothing becomes like a wick, like a candle. So what was actually happening was uh, the person would slowly burn for hours, and they did tests on pigs where they proved that this works. So that's how they were so totally incinerated. It was a low-grade fire that lasted for hours. So that's it. That is spontaneous human combustion. I'm sure you were wondering about that. Um, I hope I made your life a little bit more full by knowing that. That's it. This is The Medical Beat. I'm Dr. Steve Harvey. Thank you for joining us. I had a great time. Hope you did too. Ciao. That last song was dedicated to everyone who missed it because they were in the bathroom changing their tampon. And the next 12 hours of songs are for anyone who's trying the Diva Cup for the first time and is currently kicking back with uninterrupted period protection. Sound good to you? Check out the world's number one menstrual cup for yourself at shopdiva.com and get 10% off with code RADIO10. Conditions apply.